John. Hello, Scott. Do Do you like capitalism? Uh, not particularly. <laughs> Me neither. Do you like capitalism? No. no. Do Do you wish the sea animals would rise up and take back the land? Um, doesn't seem like a, a bad possible future. Yeah, you know, I think, obviously, we ha- this is Popcorn Eschaton, a side quest of zebras in America, coming to you, you know, just about every other week when we can. You know, we're, we're a podcast that, that tackles uh, eschatology and, and leftism, f- from, and we, we view films from a leftist and spiritualist lens. But before we were recording, we were talking about X-Men, the superhero comic book, about the mutants and stuff. And I realized that, you know, if you grow up and really, like, study the, the great leftists of our of our time, and I'm not going to, like, get controversial and say, be like, like Mao or Lenin, because, like, one, we're going to lose a lot of fans, two... I haven't really read a lot of them for for understandable reasons and and to like yeah you're not going to get oh Scott Thorough was talking good about Mao that's not <laughs> like that's not going to happen but yeah. but like if you look at you know Sankara or um uh Walter Rodney uh Fred Hampton, Malcolm X, you know, um, growing up, you either real like growing up and you get older, you realize that Magneto was right or you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Personally. I, part of the, the Xavier Magneto relationship that fascinates me is that like philosophically, Magneto is right, like his, you know, mutants are under constant threat of violence and persecution, but I feel that, like Mao, um, he's motivated also more by his own ego than anything, and so in action, he he finds a way to be wrong, whereas Charles Xavier philosophically is incorrect, but is always trying to do the right thing. And so you have these flawed leaders um, working across purposes to each other while trying to fight for freedom of the mutants. And so that dynamic I've always found fascinating. Hello there, listeners. This is co-host John Arminio. I just wanted to chime in with a little clarification on my clumsy explanation of the X-Men. Um, I did not mean to imply that Mao uh, is philosophically correct. I was just using him as an example of somebody who um, is a revolutionary turned dictator who um, lets his own personal ambitions override his um, philosophical trappings, which results in uh, lots of deaths. So... um, just wanted to clarify that I am not in agreement with anything Mao says. Thanks. So you're saying he's Mao Gnito. Ah, yes. 
the new miniseries from Marvel Comics. I mean, that's very interesting. I think the way it really depends on the way that Magneto is written. Yeah, absolutely. Because even when Magneto is written from a logical conclusion from Grant Morrison, where where they tried to, it was retconned, have Magneto be a terrorist, even though that's a possible that's a possible logical conclusion for his behavior. Um, Magneto being his. Graham Morrison is non-binary. Respect the pronouns. Or it's going to be a problem. Respect pronouns. It's 20 it's 2023 and maybe when you're listening to this it's a it's a different date. But respect pronouns and if I just want to say that if that sentence bothers you unfollow me. Don't listen to this podcast. You can you can call me a snowflake. You can do whatever you want. But if you're affected, if you're upset by pronouns or or accepting our trans comrades, our non-binary comrades, and everything in between, not as our comrades, we don't want you. How'd don't you listen. Find this podcast. There are. You'd be surprised. There are people that. You know, I've gotten some from zebras. There, I've gotten some emails from people that slowly lost the vibe based on things we said mm. um you know so whatever i'm sure there are people that are like oh oh the, oh the movies we're going to be talking about today are wim wenders wings of desire and guillermo del toro's chronos so maybe there are people like oh, i want to hear this and like oh i heard the zebras in america and john arminio a bunch of stuff and then they're like wait they don't like transphobes because the thing is, John, not every person that has hateful ideology writes it on their Twitter bio, bro. Yeah. So, And, and I'm sure they don't... They feel that it's not a hateful ideology. Well, that's the, that is the issue. That's, that's a problem, you know? And I promise I will talk about the movies. I do. I promise. Uh, you know, I was, I, was at, I was at a birthday party for a niece and there was a boomer there and um he was like defending orson scott card and he wasn't even he was he was he was acknowledging that orson scott card who wrote ender's game the ender's game series i think is one of the most prescient sci-fi books because of drone warfare Mm -hmm. and i think it is a significant book and an important book to at least read the spark notes of though I'd, I would even recommend reading it, but I would recommend getting it from a library or getting it from a used bookstore. I would not recommend, um, supporting Orson Scott Card. His views are whack and you could say, Oh, he's not whack. He's, he's, you know, he's just, he's just from the church of Sat- Latter-day Saints. And you know, that just means that you feel, nope. Because Brandon Sanderson, who who wrote, who wrote Mistborn and the Stormlight Archive and Elantris, he's also from, he's also from the Church of Latter Day Saints, and he has changed his views several times mm. on his on his views about people and about the LGBTQ population. So no, no, so. But 
sorry. But I realized that the hard the hard conversation to have with boomers, especially ah oh shit. I feel like we should maybe do Barbenheimer, actually. Okay. <laughs> honestly. I, I've only seen Oppenheimer, but um I honestly I, think that would be an interesting thing. Sure. Even though even though like I will not pay to see Oppenheimer where I will pay to see Barbie. Why, but why I know, would you pay to see Oppenheimer? Because it's like a movie about the genocide of a lot of people. Mm. And and it, it, it like lionizes. It, it's a movie about how this one guy feels bad about <laughs> the genocide of a lot of people. Right. But, but shouldn't he feel bad? Yes. Well, I... I if we're going to get into it, I, I like the movie. The movie calls out Oppenheimer for sort of showing his guilt in, in such a performative way to try and get the public to absolve him of what he's done. Like, it, it calls him out for, for that behavior. Um, so it it gets into the, the very troubling, you know, history of what he did to create the atomic bomb. I just think it, I just think as we are a religious and a political podcast mm-hmm. and we we attack dishonest propaganda, I just think that it might be an interesting thing to look at. Yeah. And what I want to get to and I promise we'll get to these movies. I'm doing the zebras here. So so please please bear with me uh John. Mhm is that, and I'm sure I've said this before, is that boomers believe, most boomers believe, that they're not racist because they don't use the N-word. That that's what racism is. Racism is is saying the N-word. Racism is being mean to black people. Mm-hmm. There's no other things that they don't think about implicit racism or implicit bias so i think there's a lot of people that are that think because they don't say the bad words about trans people that they're not transphobic when i guarantee that they're doing behavior that is and i am going to try to find a way in every episode we do to ride for our trans homies. And I mean, I have to, um, I have to give a, a shout out to my parents, um, because they definitely do not believe that. And I, I think, um, the path I am now, uh, was, was certainly, uh, politically was certainly set by, um, my parents and like showing me, before, like, systemic racism was a hot-button term in the media, um, especially my mom was there to, like, point those things out and, and the, the systemic problems of of, of racism uh, in America, that it's way, way more than being mean to a black person. Yeah, I'm not... I mean, I'm not insulting your parents you know i think you know i think you know that like for me 
when some when someone says men are trash, I know what they mean, mm-hmm. and I know that they might that they're that they're probably not talking about me. But if they are, I have a way to learn. Mm-hmm. When I say boomers, like even like my mom, who is incredibly progressive and taught me created the moral compass in me that I have you know we work through stuff yeah. um she, I mean not about not about LGBTQ stuff she's been like she's been on that for as long as I known because she was a second wave feminist so that was just part of you know a lot of that was in her circle but I think but she's been willing and and open to learning like intersectional stuff as well and i and don't get lost on me that we're two cishet white dudes talk two cishet straight white dudes talking about all this but also at the same time i've been told yo be a loud cishet white dude talking about stuff so i will i will continue to say every episode that we love our LGBTQ homies, especially our trans non-binary homies right now. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, and um, if we're if we're you know on on that topic, you know, there's a bit, um, like a, a troubling trend in um, the Methodist Church in America right now. Um, because the the Methodist leadership is sort of choosing to ignore prohibitions against having LGBT people like in uh, the, the priesthood or even conducting marriages. So they're not going far enough to like eliminate the, those rules, but they're just sort of ignoring that they exist. But that is pissing off enough Methodists that they're starting to splinter off and form their own more conservative branches of Methodism. And, like, I I guess I get that Protestantism exists, so you don't have to compromise your your moral values to find a church. But, like, if your whole deal for founding a church is to exclude queer people, like, I don't fucking understand. (laughs) Like, it's it's sort of revolting to me. Yeah, I just I just know that I'm not a Christian. I'm Jewish, but Jesus was one of our best. Look, I'm just saying that I don't think that Jesus would have thought turfs were cool. You know what I'm saying? Uh, completely agree. Yeah, I just feel like. If I'm to interpret what my brother Jesus said about love and acceptance, a lot of people that claim the set of Jesus are false flagging it. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Kronos. Kronos. Tell me about Kronos. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, Guillermo del Toro is one of my favorite filmmakers, one of my favorite artists in any medium. Um, he 
every one of his films, um, with the exception of like, you know, the the popcorn ones, like Pacific Rim and Blade, which I still really like. Oh, Pacific Rim is really good. You are bugging, but that's I, another story. I I really like it, for sure. I I own it, um, but it it doesn't um, burrow its way into my soul the way that uh, some of his other movies do. Oh, I fucking love that movie, dude. Awesome. It's yeah. No, I'm I'm like B tier Guillermo for me is like a tier for anybody else so we're i'm i'm speaking in um like a different scale when i when i have to rank his movies um okay but one of the things that i really appreciate about um his his filmography is especially his his spanish language films is uh, these these recurring themes of Sort of anti-capitalism, uh, anti-fascism, anti-imperialism, that he approaches, you know, through a genre framework, and that's sort of his like um, raison d'être as an artist to utilize the fantastic to sort of tackle real-world issues, um, the trauma of of everyday experience, the, the horror of, of of living life, and to you know, utilize fantasy um, to help us confront um, things that are difficult to confront. And you can see all that DNA in Kronos. And while it's not as explicitly anti-fascist as uh, Devil's Backbone or uh, Pan's Labyrinth or certainly Pinocchio, um, I still... I still find those themes in there, and it's a, a very, you know, heartwarming horror vampire film. And um, I'm just very glad to be uh, talking about it today. So uh, what about you, Scott? Uh, what are your opinions on it? On Kronos? Yeah. Um, I actually had never seen Kronos. Uh, okay. The, the earliest Guillermo del Toro movie that I saw was probably Mimic, but Mimic wasn't, isn't that important to me. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very much smacks of a foreign director getting an American movie, figuring it out and not quite landing, but not being, not, not being nearly as bad as I remember it being. I did a rewatch and I was like, this is not terrible. Um, and then I fucking love The Devil's Backbone. That is a movie that I think about all the time, especially when I think of like anti-fascism and school and how recently in in Texas they're trying to turn the libraries into centers for punishment and i'm like bro a lot of schools are prison and the, the you're just making it worse yeah you know well, um if if i can um just read something sure um so maybe 10 years ago uh, there's this beautiful hardcover published called the cabinet of curiosities that's sort of, sort of a retrospective of 
Guillermo del Toro's uh, filmography, as well as his sort of personal collection of, like, artistic inspirations. And James Cameron actually wrote the introduction to that hardcover. And James Cameron is one of the most, like, technically accomplished filmmakers to ever live. Um, but he's also somebody who's willing to, he's, his ego is, like, unassailable, uh, unapproachable, Mount Everest-sized. And he's willing to document, several documented cases of putting his actors at risk of their lives in order to, um, get the shot that he wants. And so I found the way that he talks about Guillermo del Toro, like, fascinating. Because I've never heard him talk about any other person like this. Um, I know him as a true friend, a steadfast husband, a loving father, and the most original character I've ever met. His genius is protean. His moral compass finely calibrated, his humor deliciously rank, his creative passion inspirational, and his work ethic a challenge to the rest of us slackers. If he didn't exist, we'd have to invent him. But how do you invent the impossible? I love that. Yeah. So, like, for... Like, Guillermo Toro is somebody who makes James Cameron feel like a slacker. Which boggles my mind. And... But that... That's a really, for me, a succinct way to describe... But that... My fascination with, with him. Actually, I think that makes perfect sense. Because if you're a guy like James Cameron... Who wishes that they could make the movies that they wanted to make, but have these sort of almost delusional needs to tell stories in a certain way. Yeah. And you see someone who like Guillermo del Toro is the kind of guy who, when he was a kid, he probably played with frogs and, and like he didn't need action figures. He would like make movies with frogs and, mm. and bugs. He, you know, if you're someone that's entertained by frogs and bugs <laughs> And yeah, and they're like, yeah, and he's like, you know, I read Frankenstein and like, I'd like to do it this way. And he's like, you know, what's dope puppets, puppets are dope. And like, you know what I hate? Yeah, I love gears and I hate it when people are mean to children and I hate fascism and this is how I'm going to do it. If you're James Cameron and you see this guy that's like making movies every few years, you know, you're going to be jealous because because you're just, you're not getting to do what you want to do. What yeah. James Cameron wants to do tends to be very ostentatious and large and not my cup of tea mm-hmm. save for the Abyss, Aliens, Terminator 2, you know? Yeah. But I would be jealous too. Yeah, and I think that's a really good read on it, Scott. Um, yeah, yeah, because filmmakers like Cameron just, I think, get so lost in the weeds of... Actually, I think that speaks to... Um, I can find the quote here. 
While you're looking for the oh, quote, I, that... I found it. Sorry. So I think um, James Cameron can get lost in the weeds of perfection, like achieving the, the technical mastery that the Avatar films um, require. But one of the philosophies that Guillermo del Toro has used to sort of steer his career, uh, the philosopher um, Friedensreich Hunswasser, um, a str- uh, the artist, sorry, a straight line is pure tyranny. In art, as in life, the love of imperfection is the perfect love. And I really like that approach to, you know, making art. Like, if I wouldn't describe Guillermo del Toro's movies as perfect, but you'd be hard-pressed to find movies I love more, you know? Well, yeah, and then it becomes this idea of scope, style, form, what makes something good. But again, have you seen the the movie Once? Yeah. Like the the Irish romantic musical yes, film? Yes, I have. Yeah. Do you know who's like the biggest fan of that movie? Who? Steven Spielberg. Uh, that, Steven that Spielberg, sense, when, yeah. when he saw that movie, like would like sung to the treetops about how he had never seen a movie like it. Mm-hmm. And if you're a guy like Spielberg who look, he's a master of his craft, even like his throwaway movies, you're still like, holy shit, he really knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but he sees what someone else is doing who doesn't have the access that he does telling real stories and he's like, oh, wow. So I think that's the way people feel about Guillermo because Guillermo's just been doing Guillermo. Yeah. And, and you know, re-watching Kronos because it, it's not one that I never, that I ever really put too much consideration into. It just wasn't, I just didn't know it that well. Mm-hmm. Well, um... If we want to get into it, um, yeah, you know, tell me cr- t- what what is Chronos? Tell me Chronos. Yeah, so Chronos uh, is about a the Chronos device, uh, which sort of grants immortality in exchange for sucking the blood and the life force out of a person. It's this very cool, like golden scarab beetle that sort of clamps onto your flesh and and filters your blood. Uh, and so, uh, this antique dealer named Jesus Greece if it definitely sounds like Jesus Christ for a reason, um, sort of happens upon it and and becomes infected by it uh, as he's trying to sort of... And we see him through the eyes of his very innocent granddaughter, Aurora, and this is all happening as uh, an industrialist named De La Guardia is searching for the Kronos device to sort of achieve immortality. And he, De La Guardia is using his American henchman Angel, played by Ron Perlman, uh, to thuggishly steal the Kronos device from Jesus. And lots of violence and bathroom floor licking ensue. And um, so uh, Del Toro said that he wanted to make De La Guardia a capitalist vampire who sort of sucks the, the lifeblood out of whatever country he's in, and that Jesus would be a working-class vampire, somebody who doesn't have, you know, a familiar, a cool cape, 
a castle to hide out in, the money to buy passage to America or property that he has to do things like lick somebody's nosebleed off of the floor of a bathroom in order to survive. He can't, like, I think Guillermo del Toro talked about, like, if if Mina Harker looked like Winona Ryder and we had to suck on her neck to live, like, not not a hard choice. Um, but if we had to lick bathroom floors, that's gross. That's difficult. Um, right. And, um, and so even in this vampire film, he's getting at, like, class division. And I find that fascinating. Yeah, who, who, who would have thunk? I mean, people that make vampire role-playing games do, but for the most part, you know, people aren't thinking about, oh, let me tell a vampire story through a capitalist lens. Mm-hmm. What? And, you know, there's also, like, little clues throughout the film of the sort of globalist capitalist perspective because there's newspapers and signage everywhere in dozens of different languages. So even in Aurora's playroom, she sort of taped up newspapers as, like, wallpaper, and it's all different languages. So she's enveloped in cultures, like, invading Mexico. And so even in the background, that, like, imperialism of, you know, of free trade is is invading her space. I, I also, like, I'm, I'm a huge Ron Perlman fan, and I love the character of Angel and his portrayal because he's clearly... He's been broken down physically and emotionally by De La Guardia, who's, like... His presence as a spiritual vampire has sucked the lifeblood out of this, like, physical specimen to the point where he's constantly questioning his own physical form. He's obsessed with getting plastic surgery to fix his nose, and he needs his nose fixed because De La Guardia has broken it with his cane over and over again. And so he's become this, like, empty vessel for De La Guardia's, like, pernicious need to live forever and so you know like scott you you've talked about how um oppressors are oppressed themselves and i I think angel is a good example of that and but yeah and it sucks for angel because he never he never really gets he just had a sad life yeah he shouldn't be taking it out on Jesus and his like five-year-old granddaughter. Yeah, um, but he it's clearly, fucked up. Yeah, but that's 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 what is really promising about the movie. Uh, by by the ending, you know, mm-hmm. because because Greece, you know, could could feed off of his granddaughter, but he doesn't. Yeah, and there's. Just some incredibly tender moments between Jesus and Aurora. Like, he's being transformed into something, something that he doesn't understand, you know, an uh, undead being. And he says to Aurora, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I think it's best if we're together. And, like, it's this incredibly sweet and tender moment 
made by a filmmaker in his 20s, you know, who wasn't married, didn't have kids at the time. And so he was able to channel his own relationship with his grandmother, which was very troubled and in some ways abusive, but was also filled with, like, love and admiration. And he sort of, he was able to communicate that those conflicted, like, disturbing, loving, like, confused emotions into the relationship between Aurora and, and Jesus. And I think that uh, definitely is the heart of the movie. Absolutely. It's just, you know, it is a good movie. It's like a, it's very much a first movie, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I just like that even early on, Guillermo del Toro was just telling fucked up movies about how fascism and capitalism sucks. Yeah. With his, with a style that, that only he could do. Yeah, and and just like the the, you know, we get glimpses of things like the cracked porcelain faces that that he'll he'll revisit, um, the combination of Catholicism with paganism. So, this pagan device is hidden inside statues of archangels, um, and which will link to Wings of Desire. Like there there are sculptures of of angels everywhere. Um, and and so obviously, like for me, uh, that sort of aesthetic is is fascinating. But we also get um, a theme of of choice. Uh, Del Toro says that choice is the fuel that powers the human soul. Um, and so he'll revisit this theme again and again of like outcasts or monsters choosing to stick together. Um, by choice rather than their own supposed nature. So here in this film, Jesus chooses not to be a vampire. Um, later, you know, Hellboy uh, chooses not to be the, the seed of de- destruction and, you know, chooses his, his found family instead. And so this is the first instance of a film sort of really being built around that theme. And, um, and I think... That actually um, leads me to Wings of Desire, actually, uh, because that is another film based on um, the the choice of these immortal beings uh, and what their future salvation will be. Unless you have anything else to say about Kronos. No, tell me about Wings of Desire. Um, yeah, so... Uh, Wings of Desire is one of the movies that I've been wanting to cover on the podcast partially because I had never seen it before we started the podcast but it has always been um, in the background of movies that I know I need to see and it's it does sort of fascinate me because angels coming down and mingling with people is one of the oldest plot lines in storytelling. Like, it's in the Bible, it predates the Bible, but for, like, a new German cinema director like Wim Benders, it's sort of, like, unique and very out-of-the-box for the kind of cinema that him and his peers were making. 
and the the background I think is fascinating to me because uh, Vendors spent eight years in America and found himself forgetting words in German and sort of by that sort of self-realization he wanted to go back to Germany and find what he said is the Germany of my heart and this is also shortly after um, he his father asked him to uh, participate in his assisted suicide so it was this combination of like this very traumatic experience with his father and sort of losing connection to Germany that like started the gears turning to make this film and when he went back to Germany and was just walking around Berlin he just started notice noticing statues of angels everywhere and not only not only just like in churches but of bronze of copper of wood just everywhere around and so he just started thinking about the role of the angel in Berlin and how he might be able to utilize that presence to still to tell stories around the city and um, and I was also inspired by the the poetry of Rilke who utilized uh, a- angels as sort of a metaphor or a symbol in, in his poetry and so that all led into the uh, the 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 creation of of this idea of wings of desire, which is two angels, um, who are o- older than you know the earth, are seen interacting with people throughout Berlin. You know, humans do not know they they're there, but the two angels sort of hear these conversations, hear what's going on inside them, and and through the eyes of the angels, we sort of observe. Germany of 1987 and uh, Scott had had you what's your what's your experience or, or background with Wings of Desire it was a it was a code name for my friend's um, dance party for like like hipster songs that that would attract women because mm-hmm. he would call like attractive people Wings of Desire So honestly, you know, that that's really how I know about Wings of Desire. I actually had seen it like a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I had honestly never finished it until you were like, yeah, yo, let's do it. Because I thought I had watched it. I thought I had seen it. And then watching it this time, I was like, oh. I haven't seen it. <laughs> I just seen pieces of it, mm-hmm. you know. And then, I, but then I was like, you know what? Like, I don't really remember this scene with Nick Cage, you know. Nick Cave. Nick Cage. <laughs> I don't We're remember talk- Nick. Nick. <laughs> We're not talking about City of Angels. We're not we're not talking about the song song Iris. Oh, I guess by, we watched different movies by the Goo Goo Dolls. Yeah, yeah. I I just watched the Goo Goo Dolls music video ten times to to reach the, the running time of two hours. 
Well, City of Angels, you know, was one of the last movies I saw with my mom and my dad, oh, wow. um, which is a, a loose remake of Wings of Desire. That's that's the joke. I'm not sure yeah, if you're yeah. aware. <laughs> I'm aware. Okay. Anyways. Um, yeah, you know, Paris, Texas is sort of like, like, I don't know a lot about Wim Wenders. Tell me about Wim Wenders. Um, actually, those are the only two movies of his I've seen. I find him, um, a fascinating filmmaker. Like, I really do love these, these two movies. Um, so, like, he's, he's somebody who at this period was, I think, struggling to find... Like it is his own voice and his own process. Um, you, even if like Paris, Texas was, you know, one of the like indie darlings of of the eighties, and and a movie that I, I think uh, continues to have uh, a reputation for its lyricism and and its and its beauty, and I think that's definitely still true for Wings of Desire. Um, but you know. One thing that fascinates me about Wings of Desire is that it's it's such like a piecemeal collaboration. So like Vendors brought this idea to the screenwriter uh, Peter Handke, um, who did not like it the the idea, um, and so he sort of turned Vendors down. But later he just started writing these dialogues, and would send them to to vendors and be like well, well I, I don't want to deal with like constructing a coherent plot but I'll write these conversations or these monologues for you and like it'll be your job to connect them and so to, and so all the interior monologues and the narration that's all that was why that stuff was written and vendors sort of use those as islands his term to navigate the film and through people like uh, Claire Denis, who was sort of like an assistant director on this, they created instances and scenarios to fit those conversations and monologues into. And Vendor sort of wanted to try this approach because in the past he had sort of felt constrained by a script that he couldn't break out and be free to sort of explore ideas while shooting. But while filming this, he then felt terrified that he was so out on a limb without an anchor and without that that safety net of a script. And so, you know, for me, Vendors is, is this artist who's constantly, like, questioning and struggling with his own creation. And so I, I think it shows how some artists can be so so full of self-doubt even if they're making something as beautiful as this film and it really is a beautiful film tell me what is the film about yeah um it's a these two angels are you know going around listening to the inner monologues of human beings and um one of them damio played by bruno gantz uh falls in love with a circus acrobat um marion and he, um, he, especially after meeting Peter Falk, who is uh, an American angel, yeah, 
Um, Which is awesome. Yeah. Like, what what a, what a perfect choice to play an angel. Like, he's just so friendly and warm. Um, he decides... Uh, da- uh, Damiel decides to forsake his Im- immortal self and choose to become human. Sort of pursue his, his love for uh, this woman who sort of personifies the love that these angels have for humanity in general. And, and, and I think that's something so fascinating about this movie is that you have these angels who are so separated from humanity but are also so close to them like they're constantly like caressing them and like gently putting their head on on a person's shoulders and listening to what they have to say and so there is this sweetness but also this tragedy that as close as they are they can never really achieve a true intimacy with them yeah and and that's what damiel um you know what he most desires he says um he wants to take the plunge uh time to ford the river but there is no other bank there's only the river onward into the ford of time the ford of death it's time to climb down from this watchtower of the never born Oof, it's good yeah it's good writing. It's it's a really poetic movie. It even though it has a story, it vibes, it dances. It's spiritual, it's soulful. Yeah. You know? Uh yeah. and and you know, from somebody who you know, you certainly wouldn't think of people like Vim Vendors as conventionally religious, but he needed to explore Berlin in this spiritual way. And especially for his generation, I, I think there is also this sense of, like, what the fuck did our fathers do? What the fuck did our fathers do? Yeah, like, and and there, so you see some of these, these flashbacks of, of the history of Berlin, and, you know, th- these, you know, for, for Germans of this generation, like, World War II is in living memory but they were children at the time and so like they grew up with the legacy of the holocaust of world war ii knowing you know the horror that was committed by their parents but having like like like, where do you put that guilt you know and i think it's sort of explored in the architecture of of some of these scenes where there's still this like bare desolation in Germany, these empty spaces that are occupied by these circus performers. And and so there is this like bleakness and despair to the film, but there's also hope in in, in every one of these interactions between angels and people. Even though if angels do exist, I think they're a bunch of cowards. How so? If angels do exist and not like biblically accurate ones, those are scary. No, thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> help us out. We're hungry down here, man. We're hurting. Yeah. yeah. I do think um, like there's one moment where um, Cassiel is like caressing this um, somebody who's going to jump off a building and he's he just has his like 
his hand on, on the guy's shoulder and his head down and like you can feel what is happening and his, his thoughts are so scattershot and he jumps and Cassio just screams nine like it, it it causes him such spiritual pain there but like he can't physically intervene into what is happening but we see the angels do their best to be spiritual companions to people who are experiencing death or, or tragedy in, in their lives. And and I think it's a very beautiful and poetic way to to address what you're talking about, like the, the desire like how can you know, how can evil exist in the world when these supernatural beings are around us all the time, but we see them attempt to help us find strength in ourselves to, to deal with it. Absolutely. Um, thank you. I think you've described it really well. As we start to close out, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to bring forth? Yeah. Um, one of my musical heroes is in this movie, and it's just a real treat for me to see Nick Cave yeah. in, in, in this film being his Nick Cave self. He's like, this is not a song about a girl, and then plays a song called From Her to Eternity. Um, a perfect choice for a movie like this and and ju- just to close out on the theme of choice um, when Damiel who has been turned into a human um, you know by his own choice oh, also real quick um, having a cup of coffee on a cold day has never seemed more appetizing than, than in this film like the, the the tactile nature of that experience seems yes. so enticing um, um so so damiel gives this cup almost like you know, like a communion offering to marion and she says i must put an end to coincidence the new moon of decision i don't know if there's such a thing as destiny but there is such a thing as deciding so good yeah and then, um, and, and, and just the, like, there's just these other beautiful moments of her putting, like, her stage performer wings on an accordion player, or just the image of her with these, like, wing earrings that are just so beautiful. Um, so, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm just, I'm fascinated by this movie, so I'm really thankful I got the opportunity to talk about it with you, Scott. Thank you. I love talking movies with you, John, and I love talking about other stuff, too, and, uh, to the listeners... You know, zebras at gmail.com, if zebraspod at gmail.com, if you have some questions, if you have some thoughts, if you like things that we're doing, if you dislike what you, things we're doing. I'm not going to change anything, but I'm willing to listen. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes a podcast is like screaming into the void. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, so there have been people who have said that they like what we're doing, and I really appreciate that, so thank you very much. Um, and they mostly tell you they don't tell me so we got that going i'm very online so right and i'm very not online so i wouldn't trade it for the world see you on the flip side see you